0: everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, which dives deep into professional cycling. I'm here with Andrew Vance of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are going to break down episodes three through five of Tour de France Unchained on Netflix. So if you haven't seen these episodes and don't want spoilers, uh, don't listen to this because you are still waiting to see what happened. But Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get going?
1: Choose the Hard Way is a podcast about how hard things are fun and build stronger humans. This week's guest is Keegan Swenson, 2023 Unbound Gravel, undisputed heavyweight champion, not XL champion, 200 champion. Come check it out everywhere you listen. Choose the Hard Way, choose the hard way.com at hardwaypod on social
0: media. So I wanted to start this podcast with not so much an accusation, but just a concern that was levied at me about your community, Andrew, and, and I want you to respond to it. I thought it was important. A, a, a longtime listener uh, sent me a message when we were doing the preview of Unbound, and he was very aggrieved at, at Unbound because there used to be the uh, highly, and this is going to weave into something we're going to talk about later, tradition and history and cycling. The highly, highly prestigious Sunshine Hill Climb in Boulder was canceled this year because it conflicted with Unbound. They could not continue to make the event viable, and this man was very upset that your sport of gravel cycling is, is eating and killing road cycling in the US, and that it is the spirit of gravel, in his words, were, were about capitalism and maximizing shareholder value by tricking everyone into buying new bikes and doing races that are basically just road races, but you have to do on different bikes. Do you I, want to respond to this?
1: Yeah, I don't dispute any of that, but I'd invite your friend if that's what you consider this person to take it up with Colby, (laughs) take it up with Colby Pierce, pal, like head out to Valmont, you know, put up your Dukes and let's see what goes down. Colby had a two hour recap of his unbound 100 race this year, which was, it was excellent. I really enjoy Colby's podcast. I hope to interview him at some point in the near future, but I'm going to lay the blame on Colby. Colby is single-handedly blown up the sport in Boulder. He is a tastemaker and influencer. And I think that that's who he could talk to.
0: Colby's office is right by my house, and I've honestly thought about <laughs> unsolic- like just showing up to, sir, sir, sh- you're on the podcast now. Do you have a comment? Andrew wants to interview you, Just kind of a blitz, uh, gotcha style uh, appearance on our podcast.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry that the sunshine hill climb is the sunset now. Hill climbs are cool. I really enjoy checking out the whole British hill climbing community on the YouTube. There are a lot of special things happening over there in the UK. Time trials, hill climbs. Wish we had more of them here in America. Spencer, I don't know if you ever participated in the KCBC time trial series out there in Waldron. Missouri, north of the river, but there don't seem to be a lot of things like that going around anymore.
0: On to a slightly bigger race, the Tour de France, not this year, but 2022. Andrew, you completed your assignment of watching season one, episode three, four, and five. Let's just go chronologically through here, but feel free to jump around if you need to. Episode three, I'm just going to come out and say it. This was my least favorite episode of the of the series. It focuses on the French teams, specifically Thibaut Pinot, the Groupama FDJ team, and AG2R. It kind of worked out perfectly because their GC contender, Ben O'Connor, had, a, I believe, a torn glute, and they kept him in the race, and then they win a stage with Bob Youngles. To me, this was al- almost like a This Is Spinal Tap-esque mockumentary about people who think they're doing a good job running a cycling team and are not. What was your takeaway from this episode?
1: I'm just looking at a Google result for AG2R. I was trying to look up the name of the team director who was a very interesting person. I thought he was probably the standout star of that episode. And if you recall, Spencer, he had a number of tattoos memorializing achievements of the team. And I think now is the perfect time for me to propose to you that going forward, we memorialize our greatest episodes with a series of <laughs> tattoos that will slowly reveal over time at our live events, such as at the BWR Lawrence Wafer Ride.
0: But yeah, I don't know. I don't want to make this too personal, but. But we would we would have achieved those accomplishments ourselves, right? So that would we would it'd be almost like we're just getting uh, tattoos for the Lantern Rouge podcast, yeah, and then claiming their their victory for ourselves. I mean, that guy obviously cares a lot. I I did think it was kind of funny where they show him his his house. It's like that's so awesome. He's got um, him and his son right around the beautiful countryside. I believe it's like Chambry or Grenoble. Um, but if you look closely, there's a professional bike race on, you know, and he's like not paying attention to it at all. It's like, you know, your job is to kind of pay attention to this sport and synthesize information. And you're just kind of going out on a ride during this race. I thought that was a a little odd. You
1: can time shift. That's what streaming's for. You can run a VPN, get it in another language, whatever he wants to
0: do, but going back, he's watching that when he comes home. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the core questions that I had for you, Spencer, is how does an English speaking writer who is talented end up on one of these French teams? Is this like a lender of last resort type of deal? Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. Without being, and this is a fine team with a big budget. Yeah. You. This is not like a scraped together team. Um, but there's no English. Like when Larry Warbus got signed, but think about Larry. So he was kind of on, he was, uh, closing teams, single-handedly. He was on Aqua Blue Sport. That thing goes defunct in a year. He goes over to IAM Cycling. That thing goes defunct in a year. He goes to BMC. That thing goes defunct. Oh, no, no. no. BMC was before. But then after Aqua Blue, you know, he's without a job. I think it was like October and he got a call from AG2R and they said, yeah, you can, you can ride for us because he's a talented rider. You know, they probably got him on a good price because he didn't have a lot of other options at that point in the year. And they said, you have to learn French because We're not speaking in English ever. So he had to go to like an immersive school for two months and then show up at training camp in December, January, speaking French. Um, Ben O'Connor, I don't think, you know, he's their big star writer. He's very good. I think he's, I'm, I'm probably believe that he's one of the diamond and diamonds in the rough in the sport. You know, he was on dimension data, that team folded. He was, he didn't have a job. So AG2R, clearly talented and just, Finding English speaking riders that are out of work and are very good, and then throwing them a contract at the last second.
1: Yeah, I think the big takeaway from this episode is that, relative to what we know about most other professional cycling teams, they are not using a lot of modern methods. They're very passion oriented. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, Spencer, you and I just interviewed Allison Jackson. We're going to be dropping that interview. At some point in the future and one of the questions we had for her was what is the communication like with the team car what's actually going on inside of the race and this question was a direct result of what we saw going on in episode three of unchained i think would you agree spencer
0: yeah i did not see a single piece of useful information, information from the team card to the riders, and as you say it just seemed to all be passion-based where that's it's like, well, they, these guys don't do FD. No. Yeah. FDJ did their first altitude camp this year. I mean, that is ridiculous. And they're not giving these riders any useful information. I mean, AG2R had the stage where Ben O'Connor, I mean, do we want to talk about Ben O'Connor tears his glute. They do an MRI. They see it. They say, good news. You don't have a torn or you don't have a broken hip. You just have a torn glute. We're excited to see you ride tomorrow. Like what happened there? Like why would they expect that to be okay?
1: Yeah, I you know I can't answer that question because it made no sense,
0: Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, clearly he he struggles the next stage. But they have Bob Youngles, um, who who did an amazing ride to win the stage, which was stage nine. And they're just kind of screaming at him. And it's a pretty complex situation in that group because you have Tibo Pino, who's an incredible climber, in that group. So that means he has to get away from Pino before the final climb. Hold off Pino, instead of walking him through the steps of how you, one would, might accomplish this, or even you have 15K on the flat, it's going to be about a 20-minute effort. Then you have the climb. These are the steps of the climb. It's <laughs> just screaming at him through the radio. I mean, I think, he took, I think he took it out, and then he said, yeah, I had to take the earpiece out because I was just getting yelled at. I, I, that's not how I would have one a race. And I think, um, I mean, you'll just have to listen to the Allison Jackson interview. She gave a pretty interesting answer to that question.
1: To be fair, this is a piece of content that's edited. We don't know everything that was said between the staff and the writers that day. It definitely did appear that it was just a lot of yelling. And I don't know. I mean, it is possible that for some writers that motivates them, it enables them to go deeper. I have to also imagine that if that's all that's ever happening in your earpiece, that you become numb to it and it becomes totally ineffective. But... It did seem, at least from what we saw on camera, the preferred methodology.
0: All I was thinking about is that like, it all goes out to every rider. You can't just target, talk to one rider. So like, someone's 20 minutes off the back just getting that in their ear. <laughs> someone's screaming, go, go, go. And you're like, I don't know what's happening. And I'm in the groupetto, and I would prefer this not to be happening right
1: now. Yeah, and after Ben O'Connor, so he's in that crash, and then... I don't remember if it was – he had a torn muscle in his hip, I think, and he had the results, and then the team director and someone else from the team staff came in, and they tried to give him that, yeah, but we're going to – know, you you're going to ride tomorrow. We'll see how it feels. We'll rub a little dirt on it. If this were World Cup soccer, they'd use the cold spray probably, I imagine. And he's like, and then on Wednesday, you're going to go for the stage win. And then when they did the (laughs) solo interview with – the team director was like, you know, these guys have to have self-belief. I'm going to encourage him. You never know. Things can turn around. But Ben apparently has a, a pretty deep understanding of the human body. And in fact, of his own body, And was like, there's no way in hell I'm getting back on a bike. Like I can barely walk guys and I can't really pedal. And then, you know, he did get on the bike the next day. And it seemed like when he wanted to pull out of the race and this is, you know, he's a tough guy. This, he knew that, it's over. And, uh, they, you know, they didn't seem ready to accept that. So that has to be a tough situation to be in as a rider, I imagine.
0: I didn't understand because there was a doctor present when they did the scan and we don't see it, but you'd imagine there'd be a conversation where the doctor would say, yeah, this is not good. Like pedaling a bike takes the hip. His hip is torn. He cannot ride. I'd, I think the doctor probably said something similar to that. And then there, are they just saying like, yeah, but passion, man, like we got this Wednesday Col du Grenon, the hardest stage in the race Ben's got this. Like I, that's where I was confused where are they just not listening to any advice from the medical staff that I assume is hired by the team or maybe that was an ASO race doctor and they, and they suspected sabotage that just bad info from, from the race organizer.
1: Spencer, I also feel like we have heard from writers who have been on these French World Tour teams. Once they leave the teams, that things happen, such as they're calorie restricted in such a manner that, like, they're pretty radically underfed relative to other
0: teams. Oh yeah, on the French, yes, or just a lot of. It's more of. It's kind of like being in the military. If you're, especially on one of your, these development teams of these right. teams, where you know they'll just like wake you up randomly at three in the morning. And you got to go train. Yeah, I think they see it as that that makes you harder because you just have to be right at any moment. You know, the race could happen at midnight. You don't know. Um, And to me, that's more of just psychological terrorism and probably hurting your riders, both physically and mentally, and making them not like the sport. And yeah, they'll do things just like restrict your calories because they feel like that's the best thing to do or tell you not to train a lot because your body is too young to absorb training or tell you to train too much because you need... ride zone two all winter long um and then suddenly you have no pop anymore it's just a lot of feel-based decision making on behalf of the team trainers i guess is what you would call them but there's a reason that and these teams are talented like that's that's kind of what broke my heart the most is both fbj and ag2r have a lot of talent on the team and then you wonder well why aren't they producing riders who are consistently Know, competing for Grand Tour wins. And I bet if you took their best practices and compared it to Ineos and Jumbo at the end of the recent Giro, I mean, it would become very obvious to you why they're not able to compete in those three-week races. Spencer, let's jump to the heart of the matter on
1: episode three. People tend to have strong opinions about Thibaut Pinot. Having seen episode three, did it change anything about your opinion of Thibaut Pinot as a human or a professional cyclist?
0: Um, yeah, Pino. I liked the farm more than I thought I would. I got the I got the reason why he wants to be around the goats. The goats were cute. I also maybe understood. I think you said this off offline that you know it's just life is pretty good for him, right? He's got this nice farm. Um, you know, maybe some people would say an a, an attractive partner, perhaps if you were if you were into aesthetics, and he probably makes a lot of money both for the team and he's enough as, I bet he's a massive celebrity in his uh, region of France that he's from. And he's thinking, why am I going to all these races? Like, this is not great. Um, So I kind of got the reason why he's not totally focused. But to me, it almost even complicated the picture of Pino where they're trying to sell this image of, I think he even said, like, I think I'm more liked than I am talented, where I would disagree with that. I think he's one of the most talented riders, riders in the peloton. Like he just finished, I believe it was fifth at the Giro d'Italia without even really trying. And that was a hard Giro with a lot of good riders at it. Um, this guy is on incredible form. And it, it is a little bizarre to me that he just is retiring at the end of this year. Why? I guess to be on the farm, that's probably going to get a little boring a few weeks in, I would imagine. I mean, did it shine any new light on Pino for you? I think it certainly humanized him. I think
1: there have been, he's, I mean, he's been, attacked heavily and frequently in the press and on Twitter for some of the things that have happened during races for (laughs) and by team managers of other teams. Team managers of other teams, yeah. I think that he's a contentious figure. I think he's seen as someone who doesn't, you know, yeah, he is an incredibly talented rider capable of stage wins, perhaps capable of taking an overall, even though he's never done that. And the goats were very cute. Uh, I visited a goat farm to see some baby goats, also known as kids, with my my wife and our children recently. They're, I mean, they're cute. I can see why he wants to spend more time with the goats. <laughs> and then out on the road, I mean, I think we saw his complex psychology. It's almost like he's a a Juilliard trained cellist, and you know, he just can't put it together for that big performance. And it just keeps happening over and over again. And the stage that they were that he was targeting in his home region, he totally imploded. So he just seems like someone who has the talent. And then I think all the maladies that we have seen him suffer, the lapses of concentration, just becoming hot-headed at the wrong moments, not writing strategically. I think that he's someone who just undermines himself over and over, who has the ability but lacks the confidence. And as we've talked about before, That's just such a huge part of the game. And a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but there is a subset of people who have the genetic capacity, can drive a bike, and they just can't put that mental piece together consistently. And for Pino, he really seems like that kind of individual where when everything has come together and he has the form, he simply cannot perform.
0: Well, okay. So you're. It was hard to come away from this episode with anything but positive feelings about Thibaut Pino as a person. I thought. I mean, he really came off as a nice guy, um, almost too self self deprecating. So just as far as personal criticism, I feel like he gets a little too much crap for that. But d- does he not perform? I like to me is a is just. Do people think about Pino in the wrong way? Like, is finishing second. At two zero stages and finishing fifth, that's pretty good. There's a lot of riders who would want to do that. And with just a little bit of coaching, saying, hey man, instead of sitting on the front for the last 10k race, why don't you go to the back for a little bit? Why don't you go into the last 300 meters in second wheel instead of first wheel? I think the guy would be winning a lot more. I mean, to me, his career is not this disaster that they've that they described in the show. I guess if your expectation of him was he's going to win the Tour de France and be like the next great French cycling hero, then yes, it is disappointing, but you know, to be a pro for as long as he's been, to have as many as 33 wins, that's a lot. Three tour stages, two Vuelta stages. That's not a bad Palmares. That's where, to me, it's the story didn't quite match reality where I look at Pino and I see a, a very good rider capable of, you know, winning out of difficult breakaways or finishing high in the GC. Not many riders can do that. And maybe not quite the failure that they described. I mean, am I off base there?
1: I love the level of generosity that you have right now that I don't believe I've heard from you other times that we've discussed <laughs> Tebow, Pino, Spencer, but that's, I don't,
0: yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe there's a gas leak in this room or something. <laughs> I'm not thinking straight. No, I. you know what? I think that that's, that's like a kind and
1: human assessment. And I think also this speaks to, for whatever flaws it might have, I think that in totality, Unchained, does a great job of doing what we see coverage of other, more mainstream sports do, which is it's humanizing and dimensionalizing these people that typically we're just seeing from helicopter or motorcycle shots who are out there racing. And then you get bits and pieces of information, particularly riders from French teams or other teams where you're not getting a lot of English language communication from the team itself. And I think it's great. I think it makes the sport far more compelling. The stories of these individuals create high tension narratives that are interesting to follow. And I, you know, personally, like I want way more of this type of stuff. Teams themselves have tried to do it, some with more success than others, some in a somewhat cheesy and effective way. But this is what I think potentially draws more people into the fun of following the sport. Even if they're not participants, maybe.
0: Yeah. Maybe. I, I thought no. the inside look of even like seeing David Godou's post-race interview in Fr- the French language one, subtitled in English, was super interesting. Is there your quotes, you're not getting, you know, I follow cycling really close. And those were quotes i had never seen before about the stage that I thought kind of shine light on it. I'd like to see more of him. Did we bury the lead? Did you see that guy's setup? That podcast setup was, was elite. You know, he had the LED wall, basically, of lights seemed like four monitors the mic hanging over i was a little embarrassed if i'm I'm being honest and that go a professional cyclist is just pumping out this content on a much more professional setup than i am
1: all we can do is our personal best and try try not (laughs) to have an injured back that stops us from winning the stage in sport or life
0: and i thought just last note on this episode i thought kind of one of the more interesting things was how much go do and pino tend to train from home versus, right. you know, what do we talk about on um, this show now basically could just be called beyond the altitude camp. It's all we talk about. It's all like, it just seems like the best riders spend all their time at altitude training camps. And it just seemed like Gadu and Pinot were like, yeah, I'm at my house and I go for a ride around the town and then I come home. It just seemed like a really different way of approaching training. I guess you could say less effective maybe if you look at the results, but maybe, maybe they embrace work-life balance in a way that other teams don't, and that has given Pino more longevity in his career than if he was like a Tom Dumoulin type.
1: I mean, the place my mind is going immediately is to the ambassador of Volcano Nation, Remco, and I. Something that I'm curious about, Spencer, I don't feel like I've I've seen a lot written recently about Remco's performance in uh, in recent history here having perhaps been seriously impacted by his bout of COVID. It seems like people are really ragging on Remco for not being in top form. But the reality is, you know, going back to this, we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't really get information about Remco. Uh, there's there's not a lot of actual journalism. We're not hearing from Remco directly. Perhaps his bout with COVID was more serious than we've been led to believe, because he returned to competition very quickly, right? And we've seen what yeah, about four weeks,
0: right, from his yeah, from when he left the year to, and you know, COVID. I, I would even say a non-serious bout. It does tend to. And this is very unscientific. I would just say like mess you up quite a bit. Yeah. You know, in terms of athletic performance, where I didn't feel right four weeks later. but the, I, the one pushback on that would be you know his his recent tour of Swiss, Let's just say failure, even though he won. Uh, a stage and finished third overall. It looked a lot like last year at the Tour of Switzerland. You know, to me, that just struggling in the high mountains. You know, not able to climb with the best. His time traveling was pretty good, like not a total flop. And then he he kind of looked back to him, his old self when he got out of the mountains and won on stage seven. You know, to me, that's like, is this the COVID or is this guy just not climb that well in the high Alps? And we haven't really ever seen him race courses like that. At, you know, at a big race before.
1: I just want to make sure we get that COVID warning label on Spotify again. You can edit, sure, edit we'll this out that, yeah. later or not, but I just want to say the word ivermectin and then we can move on.
0: <laughs> I have a crazy story about that. I'll tell you off, mic. But so let's go to the next one. Episode four It really was like a jarring switch where you go from. I thought they were playing it up a little bit like, oh, FDJ and AG2R, they're just, they're lovable losers where it's like FDJ is a pretty good team. Like they're consistently ranked in the top five to seven in the UCI rankings, but we go straight into Jumbo. Um, it's called attack counter-attack episode four about, I would say one of the best grand tour stages in recent memory. The yeah, uh, Col du Grenon stage of last year's tour, which was stage Eleven where Jumbo kind of concocted this really really smart plan of instead of waiting to try to attack Pagachr on the final climb attack him really far out get numbers on him and you know you know the thing is you can get numbers on anyone right like sure there could be eight quick step riders and in by himself but if though a those guys aren't strong and b Pagachr doesn't think that they're threats in the GC it doesn't matter like you could have Remy Cavagna attack with 60K left in a mountain stage, Pagacha's going to let that go. He's not going to chase it. The, the key here was Primo's Roglic, for some reason, even after his crash and kind of showing that he was not going to be a GC contender at this race, Pagacha, for some reason thought he was a GC threat and they were able to basically have him attack and then Jonas attack, him attack, Jonas attack, until they kind of baited him into attacking himself like way too far from the finish. Um, we saw him like begging for water from the Jumbo car before the final climb, and then he atta- he cracks on the final climb. Vindigard wins, um, pretty much wins the tour with the stage. W- what were your big takeaways here? Were you impressed with the strategy? strategy? You-, you have notes for them?
1: Yeah, no, I thought the the strategy was impressive. and this is a, an example of I've been wondering about for the past year what actually went on when this whole thing went down and it was incredible to get to be inside of the team and hear it happen. So I, I think that this is one of those magic documentary filmmaking moments. And, you know, same thing with episode five, which we're of course going to talk about in a moment. But yeah, I thought just incredible to get a glimpse at this. Uh, as far as Pog is concerned, I still wanted, I don't really feel like they tuned in on the story that we still don't have the answer to, which is you're right. They showed him getting denied the water, but if you'll recall, it seemed like part of what probably happened is that he didn't get feeds when he needed the feeds because his team car was blocked from getting up there when they were going through the valley, I believe. And that's remember he like made the the goofy, he turned to the camera and like yep. made some face. Like he was A okay. But it seemed like he just didn't get his feeds when he needed them and that he likely bonked or something. Something happened that was preventable. I feel like we still don't have that story. And that's one of those areas where I feel unchained is coming up a bit short here. And I mean, for my wife, for example, who watched this episode with me, I think she thought it was a great episode. For me, I was left wanting because I wanted that other side of the story. Like what actually happened?
0: Yeah, no, it is funny. It's people that don't follow the sport that closely tell me they're like, oh, I love this app. And I was like, oh man, there's a lot of meat left on the bone here. I would assume you think just think about it like this when vindegaard is attacking roglic is attacking he's responding to all those attacks personally and then when he's attacking he's attacking he's not eating or drinking during any of those moments but you know when roglic is up the road vindegaard is probably drinking eating he's not sweating it he's just sitting on Pagatra's wheel so i'd assume part of the problem was just his hands were on the bars in like an aggressive position for way too much of that stage and if he would have just chilled out and like, I'm isolated up here. I really only care about Jonas. Let's just, let's just focus on Jonas. Maybe he could have eaten and drank more. I mean, if he's begging the Jumbo team car for a bottle, that's not good. That's a bad situation to be in. And like, you're right that his team car wasn't there. They actually were not there quite a bit. You know, this happened in multiple stages. That's unclear to me. Like what was going on with UAE? Why couldn't they get him bottles? I guess if he doesn't have teammates up there, it's harder to hand it to him like Jumbo could do, but I did have quite a few questions left over from this. Uh, didn't answer all of them for me.
1: It's something that I felt this episode did really effectively, that even if you were watching the race last year and deeply understood what was going on, it was conveyed much more succinctly, of course, because of editing. But just the brutality of that Vinagard Roglic attack on Pagacha. And it was like watching someone get beaten up in front of you. That's what I felt like I was watching when those attacks were going over and over. It was brutal. And because of the way it was shot, the quality of the camera work, it just was a much more visceral sensation that, again, I think could connect to someone who's not a highly informed viewer watching the helicopter footage like we were last year when this was going down.
0: Yeah, I thought the camera was much better than the live. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. To produce it live. <laughs> How about but that? Yeah. When, the, yeah, when Pogacar attacked, you know, when it happened live, I was like, oh man, they poked the bear. They're in trouble. But I feel like when you see it in the documentary, it's like, Ooh, like this guy is, is not good. Like the, they, they're able to respond. You can see he's a little panicked. Do you know who was not panicked during this stage? Oh my God. Garrett Thomas. Just oh yeah. Doing his own thing. Nails. Not, he's not bothered. Guys. nails yeah. just,
1: just back there <laughs> hidden behind
0: the Oakley eye shades. And it did kind of have, I had a little bit more respect for Thomas. I mean, just traditionally, I've not really liked his style of riding. It doesn't do a lot for me. Basically, it's just one speed. I had more respect for his ability to stay calm because like, for the lack of a better word, the shit is going down. And instead of panicking, he's just, I'm going to ride my pace and I'm not going to worry about these guys. I I know that if I ride my pace, I'll arrive at the destination in the fastest possible time and I will have saved energy versus Pagachar, who's attacking and I will drop later so just yeah tons of respect for Thomas for just keeping it easy on this
1: yeah Thomas Diesel just a kind of a, another meta comment here is I think about the structure of the series itself and I've tried to talk to people who are non-cyclists to get their take on this I'd love to hear your take Spencer it completely makes sense why the core high concept of the show it's based around the Tour de France, as as they say, uh, I had a friend mention this to me. They probably say more than a hundred times, this is the world's biggest bike race or some <laughs> some version of that just over and over. It's like, yeah, we get it. We're watching the show. You can stop telling us and just show us the action. However, the action in the race itself and what's actually happening inside of the race is, again, as an informed fan, I found to be really confusing. I just couldn't even... And, I watched the race. You and I did, I don't remember, quite a few podcasts about it last year. I couldn't really follow in a linear fashion what was going on inside the yeah. <laughs> inside the race. I was yeah. so confused. <laughs> so I think that that might be an area where the series didn't do a great job. And then, again, I understand why this is all oriented around the, the tour and probably sold the show and got it sold again this season. But I would love to see an approach That we've seen with the F1 series or even full swing where we're watching these characters throughout the whole year and it's more character driven versus trying to jam it into the narrative framework of the tour, which I actually don't think serves this documentary that is about the Tour de France, ironically.
0: Yeah, I I had the exact same note where I've, I've been watching Full Swing. Love it, by the way. Might Sneaky be the best of all these documentaries as far as character development and making you care about people who you would not care about normally? And that was the weakest part of this documentary, I thought, where they just don't, I guess they didn't have time or the space to... To focus on people year, you know, year to year, like Jan one to December 31, because it is about the tour. And maybe we just know too much. Like if you do watch a Formula One season and then watch a drive to survive, it's a little nonsensical. Yeah. So perhaps we are just too close to the situation and we're like yeah. noticing the gaps that other people aren't seeing.
1: Yeah, could be. I would also say with this Yumbo oriented episode. Another thing that I thought was highly effective, and that as a fan of the sport, I want a lot more of just getting that the life and times of my name is Jonas, getting to see him shoveling, you know, with the shovel, shoveling ice onto fish, hearing him because he worked in a fish factory. I don't know if it was a cannery or if they were just doing recently caught fish that were going to market, but he's like, Yeah, I was working in a fish market. I was a middling, a, a pro cyclist, a middling ability. And then the anecdote, which I don't believe I personally had heard before, where Yumbo had called his team director about another rider. His team director was like, yeah, you might want to take a look at Jonas. And then this guy is a, a world-beating GC talent. That's incredible.
0: That's incredible, Spencer. Yeah. I, I had the same thought where they show me <laughs> him riding. I think you had the quote of like, what was he doing? Just riding through fields? And they showed him that's literally what he was doing. Just riding through fields in Denmark. And my son saw that scene. I'd be like, why is he on the road? What's he doing? Why is he packing fish? A lot of questions about the fish. I want that explained in more detail as well. But yeah, yeah like, I, and I was like, this could be a whole episode. Like, how did this happen? The one thing they didn't mention is the director, Yumbo called his director. At the time, Jonas did have the KOM on one of the most competitive climbs in the world on Strava. Right. So that, that, that is a nice little calling card to be able to pull. It's like, yeah, no, you, you should look into this guy. He's literally faster at climbing than any rider you have on your team. So I think that helped a little bit too.
1: Is that full flag and
0: Boulder? Yeah, it is the full flag. Uh, yes. They, they say that is the toughest one. Actually, no, it's funny is there was a guy on this podcast, Keegan Swerble, who got a contract on human powered health because he got the KOM on full flag.
1: Not bad. So if you're and, out there and,
0: and you have dreams, make your way to Boulder. And yeah, for full disclosure. Jonas does not have that was not full flag. It was a climb in Spain that these all these teams go to for training camp. So it's a perfect way, actually, if if you want to be a pro and you think you can climb out climb everyone in the world, just go to one of these Spanish training camp climbs and beat their current employees and they'll be pretty interested, probably.
1: It's not a bad method. But yeah, again, dimensionalizes Jonas. I have to say I came away with the impression that. You know. Yes, he's a very mentally tough person. I've never doubted that. He seems like a really, he seems like a, a good guy and he is a champion and he delivered when he was under pressure. I still would say, I don't know if he is built for the level of fame that his success has brought him and let's see what happens during the tour.
0: Do you know who he reminded me of upon second watch of this is Chris Froome actually a lot of Chris Froome vibes where I remember the early days of Froome where he's just this goofy guy doesn't that look that good on the bike kind of an odd backstory and you're thinking oh I mean is he really going to win the second one Ah, I can't really win the third one and just for whatever reason they can just keep ripping off tour wins so I I got the same vibe but to me I, I'm predicting this is Froome 2.0 and he will not have the success across the entire calendar of Pogacar but I think he's going to continue to be tough to beat at the tour just for whatever reason some of these guys can just get that in their sights and they seem to always be on top form at it. Uh we got to we got to keep moving. I got to take off in a few minutes. So let's talk about episode 5. This one gets into the the Alpe d'Huez stage and to your point, it is a little confusing cuz this is just the next day that this stage is that this episode's focused on, but they kind of go back in time and show us that Ineos, the formerly dominant team, is now the race is being dictated to them instead of them dictating the race. I mean, actually, a big thing about the ep- episode before is I, was, it was really shocking to see them over the radio saying like, "Just watch for the pace to be lifted on, you know, on I think it was the Galibier or, or one of those climbs." And it, it's really crazy because what two, three, four years ago they would have been the ones dictating the right. pace, not having it dictated to them. So you can see that they're not what they used to be. You see Garrett Thomas getting a massage and uh, Steve Cummings, the director, being like, Yeah, we're thinking about putting uh, Tom Pickock in the break for Alpha West tomorrow. And Thomas is like, Wait, why? Why would we do that? How does that help me? And he's like, Well, just to win the stage. He's like, Oh, like I, that was interesting where I just to see the dissonance between team goals and rider goals, where Thomas clearly did not want Tom Pickock to go in that breakaway. He wanted him to stay as close to him as possible. Um, Pickock was saying that they're not. They're not challenging Yumbo. To me, it's like, well, what exactly, how are you going to do that? I guess Pickock climbed up into eighth after he won the to S stage, which happens in this episode, but he was never realistically going to panic Jonas. Um, The big crux of the episode is Pickock descends. um, He's in the, I had forgotten this. He's in the Peloton. I think over a minute, maybe two minutes behind the break, he descends one of the climbs or descends so fast he <laughs> bridges the gap to the break, which is almost impossible to do. I mean, he's ripping down this descent. It's to me, it was a little weird watching it again after Gino Mater passed away tragically at recently, the tour of Switzerland. Um, and it kind of made like the Jonathan Voders like, it'd be like jumping out of the car in your underwear, like hyperbole, a little bit tough to swallow. I'm like, Oh, I mean, yeah, you're, you're risking death is what you're doing. We can just say that it's yeah. very dangerous. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but it was an amazing ride. He gets up, drops Nielsen Palace. Um, we can talk about what the heck he was doing to start this stage and wins the stage. And that's kind of the episode. I thought this was my this is my favorite one to be honest. What do you think? Well, I mean,
1: Spencer, I know you've got to go, but you've really stepped on my material here. So,
0: <laughs> oh, sorry, I just <laughs> ate it. No, just <laughs> you're no, going to give it a spin that I would. Yeah, not.
1: I'll, I'm going to give it a spin. I'm going to give it a Missouri spin. All right. Yeah. I, some of the thoughts that I had, you started with the exact thing that I zeroed in on. And again, I was watching this with Molly, my wife, who does sometimes watch the tour, but is not a fan like we are. And that moment, I think, just probably flew over the heads of almost everyone watching the show, except people like us. So when Thomas, I don't remember if Thomas was getting a massage or he's just like relaxing in his room. He's and we all, you know, again, if you know the backstory here, huge contract with the dispute with his employer over the winter. They've totally lost belief in his ability to win a grand tour. He, you know, they I don't know if he took a pay cut, it seemed like potentially he did, and I
0: think they, yeah, yeah, I think like, they really cut his pay. Maybe a big pay
1: cut because he was not in a room situation where he was going to have a big salary for perpetuity because they have a lot of other marquee riders on the team. And you know, his DS comes in and is just casually like, Yeah, so tomorrow somebody else is going to be going for the stage win. Which, again, if we think back five, 10 years, there's just no way in hell yeah, that they're going to be like, yeah, you know what we're going to do tomorrow? We want to win the tour, but actually we're going to send Bobby up the road. <laughs> it's just, it's just <laughs> like, it's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how good Bobby is. Bobby's going to sit at the front of the race and eat wind for five hours. And then he's going to ride for 600 Watts for 20 minutes until he is about to pass out. That's what he's going to do. When-
0: and you know who was probably told a million times that he's not gonna win the stage because he's gotta work for the team is Garrett Thomas. You know, he yes, yeah. he's he ate shit for years. Yeah, probably on the front, not able to get stage wins because of that team, d- didn't believe in chasing both GC and stages.
1: Yeah, if this were succession, Garrett Thomas would definitely be Tom, except he I would, did
0: think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So
1: okay, so that moment like really hit me. And then of course Cummings goes and he talks to Pidcock and is like, hey, You know, I think that you got a shot at this tomorrow. What was really interesting about this whole dynamic to me is that when Pitcock is addressing the camera, it's clear he, I don't think that he enjoys world tour road racing. And he was like, you know what I like to do? I like to win races. I'm not really interested in going and sitting on the front. And that's just kind of what I have to do. So I'm thinking, okay, I get it. This is what this guy has to do to subsidize the rest of his activities. Probably can't have the same level of income. And he does, he has, you know, he's a Galactico. He has a level of ability to go out and just smash it, hit home runs, grand slams when he's off leash. It did make me think for a team like this, you know, do you want to, should you just be going for stage wins and not go through this charade of, yeah, Garrett Thomas is going to get second to fourth place in a grand tour. You're just wasting your ability to go out and chase stages or should you go after two things at once? So that struck me. The other thing that really struck me with Pidcock, and Spencer, I think we talked about this a little bit before we recorded, but afterwards when Pidcock has won, he's kind of like, Holy shit, like I did it. And he, this guy is a winner. He has a high level of self-confidence. I think he thought he could do that, but he wasn't a hundred percent sure. And he delivered. And he gets back to his hotel room and it's just him and his little roly bag and he's Looking out the window and I was like, man, this is world tour life. It's super boring and lonely. And this guy's going to, you know, they did the champagne thing later, but a lot of their life is sitting in a hotel room alone, looking out the window with their legs up playing video games or something.
0: Right. And these are. Yeah. And like specifically, this is like stage racing life. Right. Yeah. Let's say he wins. Sure. Uh, cross worlds in, in Bentonville, you better know that Tom is, Tom is lighting up the club scene in Bentonville. You know, there's kind of a release after an achievement Yeah, and it's like, it's the tour, man. You got to get, did you know it's the biggest bike race in the world, Andrew? It is. And so he's got to go back and get ready for the next stage. Uh, to me, that was, you, you picked out a scene that was like, he will never be a GC tender because of this. Like he is miserable doing this. That's the feeling I got. And he actually said something really interesting when his director was talking to him. He's like, you know, it's going to be hard to get in that breakaway. Like, it's going to be really tough. You, basically, you're going to burn all your matches getting into the break and you won't be able to win the stage. So what does he do? He just doesn't get in the break. And it's like, oh, I'll just get into it on the descent. But the flip side of the episode, the B plot is Nielsen Palace and TDF. Right. A lot of questions here. So oh, Nielsen me Palace. Too. Let's get into it. I know you've got to go. But like, out let's get into it. The line. The on the flats. To me, huge mistake. Why isn't Magnus Court doing that? Why isn't someone else on EF doing that to then tease out the breakaway that Nielsen Palace can sit on so he doesn't burn all his energy for Alpe d'Huez? He's a better climber than Tom Pickock. He probably should have won that stage. But that team bus, that was weird to me where they are sitting in there, as you say, it's edited, so maybe this isn't exactly what happened. Vodder's input is, man, American winning on Alpe d'Huez, that'd be blockbuster, baby. It's like, okay, what is anyone supposed to take from that? Like, that's not helpful. I'd be like, the Nuggets before their, their final game. Do you think the coach is like, Slovenian winning, sorry, Slo- or sorry Serbian winning the NBA title? Dabby Blockbuster, baby. Like, there's just nothing to gain from that. But then also, probably plants a seed in Palace's head of like, ooh, I, I, I got to be on for this. And he attacks from the gun. My wife had a good question is, did anyone in the, the team car, they're clearly not happy that he's attacking at that point. Did they tell him not to do that? Like, he, they seem unhappy. But he also seems not to have been informed that this wasn't a good strategy. That's where it was a little confusing for me where, okay, they clearly want him to sit back, but has he been informed of this fact? Or was it just like blockbuster baby, go out there and win. And then he was just kind of doing what he thought was the right thing.
1: I don't remember if, if this confessional interview was before or after the breakaway happened, you're right. In the car, they were clearly pissed off. They're like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. This isn't the way to make this happen. But there I love was... Charlie
0: Wagelius just being like, long way to go. Yeah. Maybe don't do this, <laughs> like this, yeah. but trying to hold yeah. it together.
1: I mean, what else can you do? Charlie Wagelius's book is awesome, by the way. If, if you all haven't read it, check it out. The Vauders interview, he, he, he doesn't just insinuate. I think he directly states, hey, Nielsen has this problem where he doesn't listen and he just goes. And, you know, I'm wondering if there's like a also. To his credit, as a show person, Vaughters is like made for TV. I think he's amping up a lot of the drama when he's on camera in this series. However, it sounds like this is kind of a known issue. And this is where it's tricky because, again, this will probably make more sense once you all have listened to the Allison Jackson interview. But going back to this team directors yelling in your ear, when you're out there on the road, you also just have to make some decisions on your own. And that's what the very best writers do. Pidcock made that decision. Hey, I think I can close a minute gap on a descent. And he descended. I mean, we got to talk about this in our tour preview, but how is someone at that level like 10% better than everyone else in the world? at something that's kind of mind-blowing.
0: It is a little. Yeah. You actually rarely see that in pro sports. It's almost like a Steph Curry situation.
1: Yeah. But with Palace, Palace clearly is a rider who has self-belief. And when riders have self-belief, a very high degree of self-confidence, and they take the chance and they deliver, That's, those are some of the best stories in sport. But when they don't do it, then you have a situation like this where at the finish line, in the race, Pidcock took one of those chances on the descent and he delivered. Palace took this chance, but it didn't seem like a rational <laughs> or smart decision just to burn it up off the front. And it made me wonder is over time, is he going to be able to change that pattern? And I mean, he's done some incredible things, an extremely talented rider with some big victories. But will he be able to temper that? Is that just like a racecraft strategic mindset thing he needs to tune, or is something a bit off with his antennae? Like, what do you think, Spencer?
0: I mean, there's plenty of people. There's plenty of successful cyclists with antennas, screwy antennas. So you can, I think, with a little bit of massaging, uh, you could fix that. I kind of reminded me of myself. Like I used to say, like you can't miss the move if you are the move. And that's what he was doing. He's like, well, I'll I'll just make the breakaway. Then I'll be it. But I'm looking at the profile right now of that stage: three HC climbs, 165 k, finishing on Alpe d'Huez. There's no way you can win if you're putting out the amount of energy he was at the beginning. So clearly a flawed strategy, but I don't know. I believe it. I'm a Nelson Nielsen believer. I mean, the fact that he's able to do as well as he he is in the classics and you know, maybe they are just, just stating the same thing over and over and over to him and he's not listening. But the fact that the team didn't have another plan, they should have had another writer on the team attacking from the gun there makes me think that they just, with a little bit of message massaging, they could have him writing a little bit differently. It's just instead of throwing their hands up and saying like, "I don't know, I don't know," he seems to always be up front. That's a weird us. Maybe someone should sit down with them and be like, "Hey, we've cut up footage from the last three years. This is where you could do something different." And that's what this whole series has me wondering: Is anyone doing that? Are they sitting down with writers and saying like, "Here's fifteen instances of the last in the last two years where you did X and you could have done Y with better success?" I don't get the feeling they are.
1: So you're asking if they do quarterly performance reviews with the writer?
0: Well, I they would call that the film a film room in a, in a real pro sports.
1: Yeah, yeah. In the corporate world, these of course would be their their quarterly check ins where they'd be going over their OKRs. Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. I have to imagine that again, the drama was amped up. I I don't yeah. know, Matt Bowden, JV. If you want to come on the show, and Matt, you could tell us about hugging Tebow Pino. Uh, and we also would be curious what actually happened with this situation and, you know, what were the directives given to Nielsen prior to this stage? I'd be interested in that one, but I don't feel like we got the whole story there.
0: And I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really believe in, I don't think Jonathan Botters is like a great director, but as you say, the guy, the guy should be a professional pundit. I mean, he'd be unbelievable, right? He should be anchoring NBC's. Tour coverage, the way he can build drama, and like you know, get probably regular people interested in the race, and the way he talks, it's impressive. So, kudos to him for that. But I, I also think a lot of times he's not at the race, and then they kind of like make it seem like he's the one make calling the shots in the in the bus, and maybe that's why his message was a little broad and perhaps unhelpful. Versus, what what did you think of Enios when they were sitting in there and they kind of had that little PowerPoint up? I thought it was a complete I thought that's why they were showing it to us. Like look how different these two teams are. Like, what did you take away from Ineos's pre-stage briefing?
1: Yeah, they were a bit high contrast. Again, I question what the reality of this actually was versus what we saw, even looking at the PowerPoints. I don't know. We don't have the context of the whole thing. In general, that's been another aspect of the show that I've really enjoyed is seeing the, the PowerPoints of the different teams there. I mean, you know, we've all sat through decks that are meant to motivate us. And I I just wonder what that's like for the writers when they're going into a stage like this and how much they're studying on their own versus, you know, there, there's a lot of information to synthesize and digest in a race of this breadth, Right. So I'm sure it's helpful.
0: Yeah coming from someone who's built those powerpoints you got to do with them very fast right because the information on the beginning of that stage was dependent on what has happened before so yeah, sure. everyone's doing their best you're not building your best decks let's say
1: yeah this isn't um, a this isn't a deck off for a yellow
0: jersey i did yeah. <laughs> i think it was funny before, i think it was amstel gold where they showed ef's pre oh, EF's yeah. briefing and it's it's more professional when it's a, when it's a one day because you just have like you can actually stage in a conference room and they just showed a big picture of an Amstel beer <laughs> like, why is this in here <laughs> and then they walked through the strategy and then Ben Healy didn't follow it at all he just kind of blew the whole team strategy up um it pr- pretty interesting to watch actually
1: I think by the end of the season we're gonna see Ben Healy's brifters actually touch in the middle of his bars
0: yeah and he's like he's he's not in violation of uh like isn't there the rule you can't have your Forearms on the handlebars, and they all kind of always seem to be on the handlebars, but he's getting away with it. But Ben Healy is, uh, I will hear nothing negative about Ben Healy. That man captured my heart this spring. He is uh, my favorite rider on that team at the moment. Did you think it was weird? Just think, talking about EF, going back to the, we skipped over this because even we missed it. Stage one, they're in Denmark. They get the yellow jersey with the Danish rider. Was that mentioned in that episode? Or did they just I don't think it was.
1: No, I don't think they mentioned weird. it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
1: again, this goes back to the using the race as the frame on its face makes sense. And then it just falls apart because you can't really tell what's going on inside the race.
0: And then another thing, stage two, Nielsen Palace almost gets yellow. Right. The, I think he's like five seconds out of it. Here, I'm going to pull this up so I'm not wrong. And do you know why he didn't get yellow? Because his teammate, uh, Alberto all pulled Tadej Pogacar for a significant portion of that stage. Yeah. And kept his own teammate out of yellow, and then they don't show us what happened in the team after that. And if you watch the trailer, Vodder's is yelling at someone like, don't ever fucking do that again. I'd imagine that's where that's from.
1: I don't know. Maybe maybe the pizza... That was delivered to the team <laughs> bus wasn't hot or something. We don't we don't know,
0: <laughs> right? True, true. You're right. Yeah, yeah, I guess it could be anything. Someone had pineapple on the pizza. He's just he was livid, outraged. All right. Well, I got to take off, but thanks for sharing your thoughts. And I, uh, the plan. I, well, I, we got to finish this before the tour starts. So the plan is episode six, seven, and eight, which uh, takes us to the end of the series next week before the start of the tour.
1: Is Vaughters the mouth of the South? Jimmy Hart. Wait, who's this? Are you? I mean, are you? Are you? Did you follow pro wrestling at all when you were younger? No, no, no. It's like a. You're way too refined for that. All right, I get it. I, you (laughs) know, one of the one of the strange things I did um, during my journalism career, an editor I had at Rolling Stone took over the WWE magazine, and I ended up writing a ton about pro wrestling. So I'm sorry if that reference doesn't make sense to anyone, but. Uh, Jimmy Hart was a manager uh, character in professional wrestling. He was highly charismatic, a show person, and could really sell a story. And I feel like Vodders has got that gift. Well dressed too. Yeah.
0: And if you like this, uh, if you like this series, there's actually a. It's called Blood, Sweat, and Gears, and it like follows Vodders and his team for the 2008 season, I believe. Um, Much more rudimentary filmmaking, but. It's actually pretty interesting look into like the origin story of Vodders. He's much different. He's almost a completely different character back then as he is now. But uh, I would recommend checking that out if you want to know more about JV.
1: Yeah, and I wrote about JV and his team a number of times during that era. And he let my mom come on the team bus at the tour of Missouri to meet the team, which was super cool and a really oh, nice guy. We didn't get to. Yeah, we're we gonna talk about. Yeah, we got a lot. We got a lot We've got a lot of material coming for the tour and beyond.
0: So stay tuned. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. And I will talk to you soon.
1: All right. Take care.